for the Athletic Podcast Network. I'm Kate Scott. Welcome to the update. On today's show, A's fans, this one is for you. We talked Giants hot stove with Andrew Bagley a few weeks back. So now we dive into the green and golds offseason with one of my heroes, someone who's not only covered the team for the last 20 years, but also made my career, me sitting here doing this podcast today, a possibility by doing her job so well. The great Susan Slusser of the San Francisco Chronicle. It's Monday, January 6th. Well, Susan, I figured there's no better place to start uh, our A's off-season catch-up than Guam, because I just learned that you went to kindergarten and first grade on Guam, a place that always piques my interest, because my dad spent a few years of his very early childhood there, because my grandpa Fred was stationed there at the time. So I'm wondering, what took your family to Guam? My dad was in the Navy, as I think probably okay. 90% of the people that are not Guamanian um, natives, probably with the U.S. Navy or maybe in the tourist industry. Mm-hmm. So I don't really remember it all that much, but it was pretty ideal for a little kid. You know, hot and beaches and palm trees and <laughs> yep. jungle in the backyard. I thought it was great. I think my mom was wanted something probably with a little more shopping, <laughs> something with a little less heat and humidity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. I, I, uh, that was It was really kind of a dream for a little kid. That's what my dad's always said. Have you been back since you've uh, grown up a bit? I haven't. Yeah, it's just a little too far off the beaten track. Maybe someday. Yeah, that's my hope too. Hoping to get my dad out there one day. But all right, yeah. let's get into the, the A's actual offseason. And I'd love to start at the catching spot and move out into the field from there because because that was one of the first express needs, I know, after the wild card defeat. I saw the A's reached out to former All-Star Stephen Vogt. He decided to spend next season in Arizona with Madison Bumgarner. They showed interest in free agent Matt Wieters. Then they acquired Austin Allen from the Padres in a trade in early December. Why was that spot a focus? And are they still looking after the acquisition of Austin Allen? Yeah, I think they are. It's not probably their primary focus this offseason, but it is something that I think, all things being equal, they'd like to have a veteran behind the plate mm-hmm. to pair with Sean Murphy. You know, he's he'll, he's a rookie. He p- played just in September. He's very promising. But among other things, he you know, he had knee surgery last year. He then had a little bit of a recurrence of a, of a knee problem. So I, I think they'd like to get him, you know, out from behind the plate as, as much as possible in his first sort of full year in the big leagues. So somebody like vote would have been perfect. I think somebody like weeders could fit the bill, but if not, Austin Allen does do something that the A's have very little of, uh, in that he's a left-handed bat Mm. and he can hit. He's not necessarily known for his defense, but I'm told he has gotten better, but he's a little bit of a hit first guy and he's got power. So if you've got Sean Murphy, maybe catching the bulk of the games and you're okay with going essentially with two rookies, he would definitely right now have the upper hand. I suspect the A's will do what they kind of like to do and wait and see who's maybe around still mm-hmm. closer to spring training and see if they could get a little bit of a bargain the way they did two years ago with Jonathan Lucoy. All right, let's move from behind the plate out to the mound, out to the guys that they're going to be catching. And as opposed to the past few winters when there were a ton of questions about the starting rotation, A's got a slew of arms to choose from at the moment. But with that said, who, who's gone from last year's squad? Who's coming back? And who are the new faces that are going to be out there throwing pitches for the A's this year? funny because when you look at it, there are three veteran starters that are gone from last year's rotation, mm-hmm. and yet the A's really don't have a spot they need to fill in the rotation. That's 
that's a luxury I think any team would want, and the A's know they're fortunate. I think their their biggest problem is where are they going to squeeze Chris Bassett in, who actually deserves a rotation spot, and right mm-hmm. now it looks like he might not have one. But Brett Anderson has uh, left as a free agent. Homer Bailey has obviously left as a free agent, and Tanner Roark has left as a free agent. Mm-hmm. So uh, the A's go with their young studs, finally. Jesus Lazardo, A.J. Puck looks firmly in the rotation after being up at the end of the year and showing a little bit of versatility, you know, working out of the bullpen too. I think they will both be firmly in, in the rotation though throughout the season. You know, the A's have made some noises about going a little bit with a six-man rotation. I think that's where Chris Bassett comes in or okay. doing a little bit of piggyback kind of thing that they did last year just to reduce a little bit of the wear and tear on Puck, who will be two years removed from Tommy John surgery and Lizardo, who uh, had a shoulder and, uh, and other various injuries last year that he dealt with. But the A's have Mike Fires, of course, Shamanaya back. He looks sensational in September after coming back from shoulder surgery. Yeah. And then guys like Bassett available and a couple of young, interesting other young names perhaps available. And Frankie Montas, who's the forgotten man. Frankie yeah. Montas really kept until he was suspended. He, he was the A's top starter and looked like he won't be an all-star. So definitely an area of strength for the A's for sure. Now, you've reported that Oakland's shown some interest in Royals lefty Tim Hill. Do you expect to see more movement at, at the pitching spot this offseason? I think they would like to add at least one more left-handed pitcher. Okay. I think Tim Hill would definitely would be a guy that they certainly had interest in. Um, and they did last year at the trade deadline, too. So he's a name to look out for. I think they're probably okay if they don't add somebody else. But they love to add sort of a, a veteran, kind of later in the career veteran mm-hmm. who can do a lot of things. Really sort of very much like Yusmero Petit. Joaquin Soria, those guys, you know, the A's have signed those guys in the last couple of years. Yeah. I think they'd love somebody else like that, and they're very good at finding bargains there. They were pretty happy to be able to get Jake Diekman back on that kind of deal and save a little money. He mm-hmm. didn't go through arbitration. Again, this is an area where I think the bullpen, you know, they it had its issues last year, um, and Liam Hendricks came out of nowhere and really rescued them. I think they feel pretty good about it, but if they can make another move or two, I'm sure they would. And what are the other needs? I know we are already discussed kind of a left-handed power bat, which obviously what team doesn't want to add one of those? Yeah. Uh, I know <laughs> exactly. sec- second base, utility, infielder, I've read about that as the winter meetings kind of yeah. uh, came and gone. So, so what other needs and why are they a necessity right now? Well, I think second base is probably the biggest question mark. Mm. The A's trade jerks and Profar, who obviously had his issues last year, it came on a little bit stronger in the second half than I think people realized, but he never quite got over the yips he developed with his throwing, which really was a concern. And for a team that, that has postseason hopes, you know, you, you probably want to get somebody stronger defensively. And if possible, add that's where you add a left-handed batter, switch hitter. They have had some talks with the Mets about Jed Lowry, who was hurt all of last year, uh, <laughs> been with the A's twice. Billy Bean has flat out said he's one of his favorite guys. Yep. So uh, it wouldn't stun me if the Mets do pick up some of the money. There could be some teams out there that might say, you know what, we need a second baseman. We'll pick up all the money uh, on the deal. I find that a little hard to believe, but if they picked up some of the money, I can see that being something that works out. Otherwise, maybe they look at the free agent mar- market. Uh, there are a couple bats out there, but if not, you know, the age field pretty good about the guys they've got um franklin barreto who obviously has been up and down a lot jorge mateo who's out of options we haven't seen him yet but i'm very excited about him 
He's an electrifying runner, among other things. And, of course, Sheldon Moyhe was up at the end of the season, and he looked great. The problem is all three of them are right-handed bats. Even with that 26-man roster spot, they just need a little bit more <laughs> versatility, right? Because yeah. right now their, their lineup is incredibly, you know, with the exception really of Matt Olson, uh, most nights it's going to be almost entirely right-handed. Now, they wrapped winter meetings with a Rule 5 maneuver, similar to the one that got them Mark Canna before the 2015 season, right? So what was that move, and who did they get? Well, they got a young man named Vimal Mashin. I think that's how you pronounce it. Yeah, I was name. wondering. I was um, hoping you'd know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've heard Mashin. I've heard Machine. He's a left-handed hitter, so there you go. I okay. think he probably winds up being that 26th man, especially being a Rule 5 type player, even though the A's acquired him in a, in a trade, of course, the Rule 5 rules still apply. He has to stay on the roster all year, or he has to be offered back. The A's say they think he'll hit. He's got a lot of versatility. He can play a lot of positions. Uh, and they're very familiar with him. He, this is a guy they've had an eye on for a while. I think that's probably how they look at it. I don't think they're thinking everyday second baseman, but you never know. You know, spring training, funny things happen. Although, if they went off of spring training, Franklin Barreto would have been their second base in the last three or four years. You know, he's one of those guys that hits 480 every, every spring. <laughs> yep. like. But, you know, the A's love the Rule 5 draft when they feel like they have a need and mm-hmm. they've got a roster spot, and nobody's shown that more than Mark Canna. So I think this is uh, this will be very, very much an interesting guy to watch. And he's, from, he's a Puerto Rican native. He went to Virginia Commonwealth and um, was a draft pick out of college. He was not a signee out of, you know, the Caribbean. Yeah, so, interesting. Uh, again, this is a guy who's gone through the system, but also was a little bit old. He's 26 because he's a college guy. Mm-hmm. Now, I know this is an ongoing talking point, but when Bob Melvin described the team as poor, smart, and hungry in December, when he was once again discussing the payroll disparity between his squad, the Yankees, the Nationals, pretty much every other team other than the Rays in Major League Baseball, it got me thinking, Susan, just what a phenomenal skipper he is, winning 97 games in back-to-back seasons, earning a postseason spot in back-to-back seasons. So I'd love to hear from you, somebody who's, you know, been through it all with the A's. What has impressed you most about the way that Melvin handles the reality of his situation in Oakland? He's so good, really, in all aspects. You know, he treats everybody really well. Mm-hmm. Veteran players, younger players. You know, some managers get that the tag as, oh, he's, he's a veteran, a manager for veterans. Yeah. or he, He's really good with young guys. Bob Melvin's really great with everyone, and they always talk about his communication skills. And we see that, obviously, in the media every day. He's very good with the media, too. And that's a skill. There have certainly been managers and general managers and executives in baseball and in every sport, really, that one of their biggest problems is dealing with the media. And that can be a problem. But Bob treats everyone so well, and he's so honest that uh, it's, you know, he's a, obviously a pleasure to cover. Everyone in the local media absolutely loves dealing with him. But his players feel the same way. They know he's a straight shooter. You know, when he tells them... You're in the lineup. You're not in the lineup. Here's why you're not in the lineup. Here's what we need to do. Maybe we need to do a different role. They know he's being straight up with them. So I think that's really his biggest strength. But he manages to walk that line that's really, really difficult where he is both respected and liked. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's one or the other. You know, yeah. it's respected and feared or liked, but maybe not really respected mm-hmm. so much because somebody gets a little too close or is a little too friendly. He somehow manages to straddle that line. Uh, and they they really love him, but they also really, really respect him, kind of like the, you know, look to him 
like maybe kind of a father figure-ish yeah. where you don't want to disappoint him. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great spot for a manager to be in. Well, before we go, let's talk a little bit about the stadium. First, let's talk about the netting, because we talked about the Giants extending the netting at Oracle Park with Andy Baggerly here a few weeks ago. A's are planning to do the same, so just would love to know your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, you know, they extended it out past the dugout two years ago, and I went and looked at it then. It's that very thin, you know, kind of filament. It's not actually knotted, so it's very see-through. Yeah. Um, I go to a lot of hockey games. There is netting everywhere. You just don't notice it after a couple minutes. You don't even think about it. This is that kind of netting. Uh, It's going to stop a baseball, but it is not going to keep anybody from seeing. I know there are a lot of concerns from fans about, well, what about pregame? If I go and I'm, you know, I I love being able to get an autograph from a player or have a ball boy hand me a ball or catch a ball, you know, maybe a foul ball, that will still be possible. The A's have netting that can be completely removed during pregame and will be. Oh, that's great. So, again, not a concern. And to me, I'm sure this is what you're hearing pretty much from everyone, Kate, but if it can save anybody from a serious injury, I'm all in favor. We've seen way too many small children getting hurt. Mm -hmm. An elderly woman was killed at Dodger Stadium a couple years ago. I think this is something that I think everyone should be in favor with. It's a very minor inconvenience and something that you just don't even, I promise you, people will not even notice after a few minutes, even sitting up close. You know, the best seats in the house, where are they? They're right behind the plate, mm-hmm. behind netting. Mm-hmm. Nobody complains about their view there. Everybody loves it. It's going to be the same everywhere. Yeah, that's a really good point. And another notable offseason happening, the Alameda County Board of Supervisors finally voting to sell its ownership stake in the Coliseum Complex to the A's. So, Susan, what is that acquisition of that portion of the stadium site mean for the franchise? Well, it's a little bit unclear. Of course, it's good news. And, you know, the city of Oakland had at one point sued, which surprised some Oakland city officials that they <laughs> yep, sued I to that. stop that. It's all very complicated, and nobody really quite understands some of the stuff the yeah. city has done. But this is the county's half. VAs can now buy that. Their hope is, of course, to develop that area to fund a waterfront ballpark mm-hmm. down near Howard Terminal. Now, in order to do that, they have to get the city passed. There are negotiations. I think they feel good about that. Never any guarantees when they're dealing with any kind of corporate bureaucracy right. and city bureaucracy. But, you know, that's I think that things are they're they're feeling good about it, certainly with having the agreement. So they've got some leverage mm-hmm. now. And there's also one of the things that kind of came out during all of this. There is now actually a plan in place for how they would obtain the land at Howard Terminal, which to me has always been one of the very biggest question marks. Like, well, they keep talking about this, but how are they getting this land? Right. And they're talking about a long-term lease. So I think they're starting to feel like they're moving forward on a couple different fronts. Now, they will never say this because they have said there's no plan B if they don't get a Howard Terminal Mm -hmm. stadium. But clearly, if they own or at least have a large chunk of that Coliseum property, they could go there, too. There are a lot of pluses, of course, there, including cost um, and accessibility. They like Howard Terminal for a number of very valid reasons. It could be a really nice, um, you know, kind of a counterpoint in Oakland to what the Giants have with the waterfront and a lovely view. And Jack London Square would be very nice for all the people at Jack London Square and all the people that have really been trying to develop that area for tourism and as a, a nightlife spot for the Bay Area. So fingers crossed it works out there. If not, we all know all the pluses that the Coliseum would yeah. site would come with. So 
all good news. I still cannot possibly give you any kind of time frame. They're just saying that 2023 date is somehow something they feel like is in play. Okay. I think that would be a little bit of a push. But, hey, let's keep our fingers crossed for maybe 2024. Well, like you said, Susan, I think the big thing that fans have to know about this is it feels like finally some good news after years of thinking maybe they're going away, maybe they're moving to Fremont, maybe it's San Jose. It feels like maybe finally they're actually possibly really staying in Oakland. Absolutely. You know, it's, they've been getting tired, I think, of being told no so many times over the years. Yeah. This is the first really significant yes that I think we've heard. And, uh, you know, a lot of their planning there, a lot of the permitting has been expedited. So, hey, maybe they could go. 2023 would be phenomenal, obviously. Uh, of course, everyone would be, would be in favor. To me, just as long as they've got a new venue somewhere in the Bay Area and it gets done quickly, that's from a baseball standpoint yeah. and really from the fan standpoint, I think that's what we would all like. Amen to that. Well, finally, Susan, congratulations to you and the great Ken Korak on your book, If These Walls Could Talk, stories from the A's dugout, locker room, and press box. I know you've been doing book signings around the Bay Area since the season ended. Uh, and I'd just love to know a few of your favorite tidbits from researching and writing that book. love to get a little plug in before we let you go. Oh, well, thanks. Uh, you know what? I, I learned so much about so many of the people in and around the A's, which sounds crazy because this will be my 22nd year covering them uh, full-time consecutively. Um, But uh, especially people like Clay Wood, who's the groundskeeper, and Nikki Morabito, the travel secretary, Dr. Alan Pont, who has been the A's um, primary physician uh, for 30-some years and has had all sorts of crazy cases and uh, testified the Mitchell report of just little background information and stuff like that. But I think Ken's chapters, particularly about his mom, who he he lost when he was 20 years old, his mom committed suicide. And he oh, writes wow. about that so beautifully, so poignantly, with such love. It's really gripping. It's still, I've read it dozens of times. It still makes me cry when he talks about it. It still makes me cry. It's really a tribute to her and the person he's become, and he provides all sorts of resources for anybody that is going through issues with depression. So I think it's important for anybody and everybody to read Ken's chapter about his mom, and he ties it all into Dallas Braden's perfect game, because of course Dallas lost his mom young. She died of cancer when he was in high school. His grandmother raised him, and she was there for the perfect game. They had that beautiful hug on the field, and that brought Ken, as it was happening, as it was unfolding, and Ken was driving it on the air, he was thinking about his own mom because, of course, it was on Mother's Day. So I'm still I'm getting a little choked up. We've been yeah. talking about it now. Wow. So, just gave me yeah, chills, Susan. That's my favorite part of the book. Yeah, it's it's just lovely, and Ken did such a wonderful job with it. Well, it was wonderful to talk A's, talk a little bit about the stadium, and to keep our fingers crossed for keeping the green and gold uh, officially here in the Bay. And thanks so much for sharing that tidbit about the book. We'll point folks to it in just a minute, Susan. It was awesome having you on. Oh, fantastic. Thanks, Kate. I would love to join you anytime. Well, there's few things I like more than promoting books written by my friends. So if you haven't yet, as I mentioned, the book is called If These Walls Could Talk, stories from the A's dugout, locker room, and press box. It's written by Susan and Ken, a play-by-play announcer who I look up to just about as much as I look up to Susan. And after that incredibly personal story she told us that Ken shares in the book, How can you not want to give it a look, huh? You should be able to find it at your local bookstore. As I also mentioned, Susan and Ken have been doing book signings all over the Bay since the season ended, and all three of us love supporting our local bookstores. But if you can't find it locally, it's also available online, along with all of Susan's fantastic coverage of the A's, which you can find at sfchronicle.com. Coming up in the next few weeks here on The Update. 
We'll talk college football's national championship and the Pac-12's best chances of making it back to that all-important college football playoff with the editor-in-chief of our college football site, Stuart Mandel. And on our next show, what a regular season finale it was for 49ers rookie wideout Debo Samuel in Seattle. A team-high five catches for 102 yards to go along with that 30-yard rushing touchdown in the first quarter. But his flash on the field? Well, rather dull, actually, in comparison to his outrageous outfits off of it. We'll get into Debo's sensational style with our senior editor, Dan Brown. That's going to do it for today's episode of The Update. If you liked what you heard, hit the all subscribe button. And uh, if you didn't, well, we're just getting started, so we hope you'll stick around. I'm Kate Scott. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Wednesday.